1: Welcome
0: to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan.
1: And Cassidy Zachary. So today, Dressed listeners, the Rue de la Paix appears as just any other store-lined street. So you have the hustle and bustle of Parisian city life, which animates the street with, you know, honking horns, even jackhammers, various types of construction work. Totally true. (laughs) (laughs) The presence of Cartier's black marbled facade is really one of the last remaining hints at a bygone era when the street was heralded as one of the chicest, if not the chicest, streets in the world. So what women wore on the sidewalks of the Rue de la Paix was as newsworthy as what could be purchased in its shops. It was all reported in detail in fashion magazines across Europe and America in the late 19th and early 20th centuries.
0: And at this time, the Rue de la Paix was the fashion street. I mean, it was the fantasy of every aspiring fashionista and also the reality of the uber wealthy and the elite from around the globe. So it was this international shopping destination of the glitterati of society from the demi-mondanes all the way up to royalty from all around the world. And the street itself was so legendary that it actually inspired perfumes, plays, And also imitations, because this is quite interesting, Cass. Madison Avenue in New York historically has kind of like, and especially kind of when it emerged as this elite shopping destination in the U.S., it was referred to as the new Rue de la Paix in the 1920s.
1: Right. And in a 1925 article by Vogue, the magazine called the Rue de la Paix, quote, the street of a thousand luxuries. The most luxurious, the most complete shopping street in all the world. Within these limits are centered the reasons that send the feet of every chic American woman who comes to Paris flying to the Rue de la Paix first, last, and many times in between, end quote. And April, I guess we have to say that it's not lost on us (laughs) that almost 100 years after this article was written, you and I were in fact two American (laughs) women.
0: (laughs) Flying to the Rue de la Paix as soon as they came to Paris.
1: (laughs) Yes, we actually, Dress listeners, as you'll recall from last week's uh, recap, we made the Rue de la Paix the first stop on our recent fashion history tour of Paris. So we are so excited to share with you our walking tour in hopes that you too can imagine what it would have been like to shop what was once one of the most covetable shopping destinations in the world.
0: Yes, and even if you are in Paris on your own, you could take this podcast with you. And this is our audio accompaniment to our tour of the Rue de la Paix. So we're gonna actually begin our tour on the opposite end of the Place Vendôme. So the end of the Rue de la Paix that's closest to the Palais Garnier, the Paris Opera House, if you're standing in that direction and you're looking down the Rue de la Paix, what you're gonna see at the end is the Place Vendôme, which is this round plaza. And what we wanna talk about here is the fact that that round plaza, which now houses a column with a statue on top, Actually, that site was originally the home for a church prior to the 19th century. And in 1806, Napoleon Bonaparte had that church demolished to make way for this new street into the Place Vendôme, where he had erected a giant column crowned with his statue. Not the same column and statue that it is today, but let's just say, you know, obviously it goes without saying that that when this statue was there during his reign, the Rue de la Paix was actually called the Rue Napoleon. And it was only after that he was finally deposed in 1815 that the street was given its new name, for which it would earn world renown as a fashion destination as the Rue de la Paix. Oh, and before I forget, a little fashion history fact here that church that Napoleon had demolished. Well, apparently, it also held the remains of one of fashion history's icons, the Madame de Pompadour, and we're not exactly sure what happened to her remains, and maybe one of our French colleagues out there might enlighten us, they might know, and we'd love to hear.
1: Yes, absolutely. So by 1822, the travel guide Galignani's Paris Guide or Stranger's Companion through the French metropolis described the Rue de la Paix as, quote, the center of the fashionable part of the city, end quote. But at this time, it was occupied by furnished hotels, the offices of physicians and surgeons, and really, the only fashion purveyors of dress were two boot and shoemakers, a few jewelers, and a perfumer or perfumier. So, this had all changed by the time the first stop on our tour opened its doors at 21 Rue de la in 1871. And while the couture house we are about to talk about opened in 1871, it really was only the latest incarnation of a family business, the history of which extends all the way back to 1816 when a family opened a lingerie, which at this time meant linen and cotton undergarments. They opened this lingerie and linens business. So dress listeners, we'll give you a couple seconds, but do you have any guesses? (laughs) Dun, 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 dun.
0: I love that you did the sound effects on this show because I can't sing, but you actually can. And that is something that our dress listeners might know that you have been the singer, the front woman of a few bands in your
1: time, just say. Oh my gosh. I mean, yeah, another lifetime ago, I suppose. (laughs) Okay, dress listeners.
0: If you happen to guess... Jacques Doucet, you would be correct. But if you did not guess Jacques Doucet, please do not <laughs> in any way, shape, or form feel bad. Um, because Doucet today is, is, is you know, outside of maybe people who are professionals in this field, kind of a lesser-known haute couturier compared to, like, Worth. But we do have to say this. The Doucet house was one of the leading Bella Epoque couture houses of the era, And Doucet himself is perhaps today actually more famous for his quite illustrious art collection, which included post-impressionist and Cubist artists as compared to his career as a fashion designer. So his collection included one of the most famous works of art of all time, Picasso's (laughs) Demoiselle d'Avignon, which apparently he bought directly from Picasso out of his studio. (laughs)
1: Yeah, he really knew a lot of artists and it kind of was at the center of of that artistic um, lifestyle and life at this time, turn of the century Paris. And he really was less a designer than a distinguished figurehead. He was a role model and a mentor to the designers who oversaw the two workshops of his couture house. So we have the tailleur workshop, which is, of course, um, the more tailored garments, and then Flou, which is like draping, draped garments. So all the beautiful ball gowns that we most associate with haute couture in the 19th century. And one of these designers that he mentored was actually none other than Paul Poiret, whom say literally plucked off the street at just 17 years old, which is pretty amazing. And I think we talked about this on our Paul Poiret episode. So here's a little refresher. Paul Poiret's first job was delivering umbrellas and stopping up umbrellas. <laughs> um, which well, he was not he, a fan of. Not a fan of. Although I do think, if I remember correctly, he would take the umbrella scraps home and, like, fashion dresses out of them, um, which is quite creative. But anyway, so when he was out delivering and running his umbrella deliveries, he would often be on the Rue de la Paix, and he would just kind of pop into these couture houses and proffer his personal designs <laughs> to these, ha- to these as coutures. Sketches, as sketches, sketches. <laughs> yeah. It was Doucet who was so impressed by this young man. He offered him his first job. This was in 1896. And Poirier says that he had... Of course, absolutely no experience working in a couture house. say did not care. He saw potential. He threw him into the mix as the head of the tailoring department, which is just amazing. And Paré says he threw him in like a dog into the water. And Paré did quite well. And something um, I find quite charming is that he actually spent his first paycheck on a five hundred. dollars Franc pair of cufflinks from none other than a purveyor on the rue de la paix, which kind of (laughs) sets the standard for the rest of his career, I must say, and life.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's a different story for a different day. Anyway, it is, thank you, thank you, thank you to Paray that we have all these incredibly vivid images of not only what the Doucet couture house was like in its heyday, but also the rue de la paix. Because Poiré remembered 40 years later when he wrote one of his memoirs, he wrote, quote, before its doors in the Rue de la Paix, one saw every day three lines of carriages on which the coach builders of that epoch had lavished their invention. I see always in my memory the beautiful Comtesse de Robussier getting into her Victoria on a fine sunny day in November and seating herself gracefully amidst the pale cloth cushions while a footman wrapped a fur rug around her leg. What
1: bearing? So obviously we're depending on these sort of vivid descriptions from all these people in the past to bring this street to life for us, because as we said, it might not um, represent this today as much as it would have otherwise.
0: Yeah, because actually, Cass as beautiful and as romantic as that street is, it was rather jarring when you and I were kind of like planning our walk before everyone got to join us <laughs> in Paris, and there was a lot as we said earlier, of jackhammering on the street. <laughs> so, so like pouring the romance into the street now is easy to do when you can think about these things and hear about that. But it but it seems just kind of like any other kind of incredibly gorgeous Parisian street today.
1: Oh, absolutely. And especially starting at the Opera House, which was so incredibly beautiful. I would actually suggest going into the Opera House first, dress listeners, and then doing <laughs> your Rue de la tour if you really want to get the full effect. Um, so obviously, Paris is talking about carriages. This is a pre-automobile period. He goes on about this period that, quote, it was a blessed time when the cares and worries of life, the vexations of tax collectors and the threats of the socialists had not yet crushed out the pleasures of thought and all joie de vivre. And he goes on to say a pleasant camaraderie flowered all about. So, you know, he's really romanticizing this period. Obviously, this is 40 years later, but it really helps to bring this era to life. And Prairie actually had less nice things to say about the Von Duzes or saleswomans at Chez Doucet, uh the House of Doucet. They, quote, were for the most part aged harpies. <laughs> Installed in the house like mites in a cheese. Poiré, you never mince words. He goes on to say they had a great ascendancy over their clientele. They spoke familiarly to the great ladies. And taking them by the waist would give them advice in a parental tones. Over all the personnel of the house, they exercised an intolerable despotism.
0: Yeah, and there was actually one Bondus for whom Poiré reserved particular vitriol. He was not a fan. (laughs) He says of her, quote, she wore on her head a pile of corkscrews that looked like a dire sample card. Her hair ranged from scarlet to empire green, passing through all the tints of tobacco juice, oxtail, and onion peel. (laughs) She reminded one of the swabs sailors use for washing down the deck. But a sailor with a vine stem for its handle, so nervous Sinewy and intertwisted was her neck, two green lanterns for her eyes, and a lipless mouth of a viper. Such was the frightful visage of this wreck. She terrified me. I thought her a dangerous witch and an evil fairy. Uh huh. Okay.
1: Yeah, I mean, Poirier really (laughs) took his memoirs to get back at a lot of people. I'm just going to throw that out there (laughs) if you ever have time to read it. Or them, because there are three of them. Yeah, but this particularly is from King of Fashion. So, like I said, if you need entertainment, check this out.
0: What also is interesting is that all of this is actually corroborated by Madeleine Vionnet, who worked at the House of Doucet after Prare? So they, well, both of these like legendary kind of like early 20th century designers worked under Doucet. They did not work there at the same time. But she also shared the same sentiments as Prare. She was definitely more restrained, I think, in expressing her distaste or her hatred of the Vendus. But, but there is there are plenty of accounts out there where, where she kind of, she, she backed him up in that.
1: Yeah. <laughs> While obviously not sharing an unbiased opinion, Poiré nonetheless provides incredible insights into the inner workings of the house, which, like so many of its contemporaries, catered to both European royalty, the American nouveau riche, and the grand courtesans of the monde, such as Liane de Pougy, Emilienne Dalenson, La Belle Terra, etc., etc. For whom Poiret says say created new models each and every week. So you know these women were essentially models on the street, right? These dresses were worn once and only once, but they were worn to the very highly visible racetracks on Sunday. Quare writes, quote, naturally, they waited until the last minute to order and try on the dress, which was to make a sensation on Sunday. And not infrequently, it had to be improvised as late as Saturday evening, or as I have seen done, it had to be hurriedly built up on the lady herself on Sunday morning. So really countering that myth that couture dresses, you know, took months and months and months. Of course, they did but they could also be made apparently overnight. Right, depending on who the
0: client was. And and also, too, I think it's really interesting that uh, Paul Ray even said that sometimes on a Saturday night, he would be at the couture house. Like, he wouldn't sleep. He would just be there the whole night because he was kind of like uh, working out what was happening from Saturday to Sunday when a lot of these fashionistas slash style icons picked up their ensembles to work to the racetrack. So... I really do think that it's descriptions like these that we have in text that now today really help us animate what happened behind the walls of these multi-story buildings that still exactly are there on the Rue de la Paix. And I'm wondering, because these buildings are so multifaceted, they are multi-stories, and some of them have these incredible interior courtyards as well, what other stories do these Buildings still standing
1: on the Rue de la Paix have for us, Cass. Well, next we are moving to 15 Rue de la Paix, once the headquarters of Harper's Bazaar, Paris, and the home of a distinguished fan maker established in 1827. So what's really interesting, you might notice that there's two businesses at the same address. As April just mentioned, they a lot of these buildings have courtyards, and that's because you walk in and there's multiple businesses located within one building. And such was the case with the establishment we are going to discuss right now. So prepping for this episode, we were also super excited to learn that this company is still in operation today. And of course, we mentioned this on our recap episode. But according to the company's website, Develois began with the dream of of a young man named Jean-Pierre de Valois. This dream was to bring fans back into women's hands. And it's actually the Duchess de Berry, not to be confused with Madame de Berry, (laughs) Louis XV's mistress, who threw a ball. So the Duchess de Berry threw a ball in 1829 that featured a dance called the quadrille that required a fan. So this really proved the impetus, apparently, for bringing fans back into fashion after they had fallen from favor during and after the French Revolutionary period. So, picking back
0: up in the 19th century, when we talk about fans, I just want to say, friends, these were not ordinary fans. These were oat luxury fans crafted from the finest materials from around the entire world. The fan sticks themselves could be made from precious wood or horn or mother-of-pearl or tortoiseshell, and their leaves might be tulle, silk, gauze, lace, organza, or feathers— And the fans themselves, the leaves of the fans themselves, could even be painted by the era's famous artists like Eugène Delacroix or Auguste Eng. And even a little bit later, moving into the kind of Art Nouveau and Art Deco eras, even Paula Reeb, who many of our listeners might recognize his name from his repeated collaborations with Paul Paré, and also the fact that he was Coco Chanel's lover at the time of his death— So when we're talking about these fans, I just kind of want you to conceptualize the fact that these were elite luxury objects. You can think of them as like the most expensive elite luxury handbags of today. That's kind of the equivalent, right, Cass?
1: Yeah, I mean, they're not necessarily holding anything, but they were valuable in more ways than one. They were actual status symbols.
0: Yeah, they were worn as that kind of status symbol accessory. And so the clients that flocked to the offerings of Duvalois were no less illustrious than the Queen Victoria. You know, the company basically opened an entirely new London outpost when the English family started patronizing their their fan business. Also the French Empress Eugenie, who carried a Duvalois fan to her wedding to Napoleon III, the Comtesse de Grafful, the Empress of Austria, the Queens of Sweden and Denmark. And I mean, these are just a few notable carriers of these really incredibly precious Duval Bois fans.
1: And upon retirement, the fan maker Jean-Pierre de Valerois divided his two houses between his two sons. So he gave the London house to his son Jules and the Paris shop on the Rue de la Paix to his son Georges. And it was Jules who published this book or handbook pamphlet called The Language of Fans, which is, quote, a whole code supposedly used by women for centuries. So, April, we did this in person on the Rue de la Paix with our fans in hand, um, but we wanted to go through a couple of these with you. So, April, do you want to pull out your Develoir fan that we both purchased? I've just been digging in my backpack. (laughs) and let's even though you can't see us dress listeners you can imagine so Mm -hmm. um this is a whole code supposedly used by women for centuries with the fan right so covering the left ear with the open fan means do not betray our secret drawing the fan to the hand means i hate you drawing the fan across the cheek means i love you opening and shutting the fan (laughs) means you are cruel (laughs) Fanning slowly means I am married. And fanning rapidly means I am engaged. And touching the handle of the fan to the lips means kiss me. So we talked about this in our recap episode, but thank you again to everyone at Develoir for welcoming us into the store and the archives. And really just, it was just an incredible treat. And we will, of course, provide a link in our show notes if you also would like to purchase a Parisian fan. Mm Mm-hmm. For limited time dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. So, join us, dress listeners, in putting on your detective hats and escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android.
0: All right, welcome back. We are on to our next stop, which is the illustrious location of 13 Rue de la Paix, which was the location of a purveyor that King Edward VII named, quote, the jeweler of kings and the king of jewelers. And we might have kind of like, you know, teased the presence of this company's existence still on the Rue de la Paix earlier. You might have already figured this out, listeners. (laughs)
1: Yes, because it's the luxury jewelry firm of Cartier, which was founded by Louise Francois Cartier in Paris in 1847. But it was not on the Rue de la Paix, the original store. It would actually be Cartier's grandsons, Louis, Pierre, and Jacques, who would build the brand into a global empire beginning with the move of the Paris branch to none other than the Rue de la Paix. This happened in 1899, and it was here when the company began its meteoric rise to international success. By this time, the Rue de la Paix was a thriving city center of the haute couture industry. Cartier capitalized on this fact, realizing, you know, that women paying hundreds of thousands of dollars for their gowns at these couture houses also, you know, might need jewelry to match. So let's just say the gamble paid off.
0: Yeah, and and it definitely paid off because it's been recorded in history and written about that crowds would actually gather outside Cartier's location when famed clients would begin to arrive on the street. And and many of these famed clients were actually royals. And they would receive this extra special reception at Cartier. And Sem, who at the time was this really popular satirical illustrator during the very, very early 20th century, he actually captured the arrival of the Prince of Wales at Cartier, the future King Edward VIII. And all of his Parisian admirers in the street surrounding him in the 1920s. So it's so fascinating to us as fashion historians when we get to see these events or these kind of like, you know, cultural interactions captured by artists, not just the camera. I love this so much. Um, And in fact, when we were in Paris, Cass, as you know, I bought a few sem-satirical illustrations of Paris fashion. But I digress. Other notable clients of Cartier at this time include King Manuel of Portugal, who was actually Gabby de Lee's rumored lover. And we've already done an episode on her. So for all that hot goss and more hot goss about their relationship, you can tune back into that. But also, clients at this time included the King and Queen of England, the Empress of Russia, the King and Queen of Spain, and the King of Greece.
1: Oh my God, this sounds like a royal flush. <laughs> And of course, King Edward VII, who for his coronation in 1902, ordered no less than 26 tiaras. He also, when he became king, made Cartier the official court jeweler. The London branch of the store opened in 1904 because as we saw with de Valois, you follow your most uh, wealthy clients around the globe, probably. And Cartier's relationship with the English family, royal family, actually continues to this day, which I found fascinating. Kate Middleton actually wore Queen Elizabeth II's Cartier Halo tiara um, made up of 739 brilliant cut diamonds, 149 baguette diamonds, and she, of course, wore this when she got married to Prince William, and um, I believe 2010. And that tiara is pretty special. George VI, who of course is Queen Elizabeth II's father, commissioned the tiara for his wife three weeks before his coronation. And it was gifted to Queen Elizabeth on her 18th birthday in
0: 1944. In the 1980s, Hans Nadelhofer, who happened to be a jewelry expert for Christie's, wrote the definitive history on the Cartier Empire. And he, he, on the process of doing this, which is very cool, was granted exclusive access to the Cartier archives to do his research and to create this book. And in his book, Cartier, he provides a really detailed account of the store's interiors at this time. And I just love this so much because I love painting these mental pictures or these visual pictures because we are in audio format. But, but <laughs> basically what he tells us, he says, the customer was first received into the entrance hall and then escorted according to his or her particular wishes into the jewel salon or the white, green, or English salon, all of which glittered in the light of the chandeliers. A separate room for pearls was set aside to the left of the entrance since 60% of the firm's turnover continued to come from the sale of pearls right up until the end of the 1920s. In addition, the ritual of trying on pearls frequently involved the presence of Madame Visage, who was in charge of stringing them, and the ceremony required its own setting. So basically, like... (laughs) There was this whole pullers was so popular and such demand. They were they were creating this whole ritual around not only trying them on, but also the artisans were involved who were the creators of these creations. And then he also goes on to say, with the exception of the grand gallery, the oak walls were carved with a vase and garland motifs, which were the hallmark of Corrier's jewelry at that time.
1: Yeah, and I just want to go back to the pearls a little bit because I feel like pearls are kind of not, they don't really have that same cachet that they no. might have today.
0: <laughs> There's a whole different thing then.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. They just don't have this same, I, I don't know what happened. That might be a, actually a fashion history mystery to find out, but it definitely changed. So at this period, say 1922, a price of 389 pearls Roughly $825,000. So $10 million today.
0: Like a strand. One of those really long strands of 20s pearls, right?
1: Yeah. And I always, as a fashion historian, you know, you kind of cringe when in movies, you see them rip the pearl necklace. It's such a movie trope. And all the pearls scatter across the floor. And you're like, those were not real pearls. Because real pearls would have been individually tied on. They were so incredibly valuable. Yeah, And of course, we mentioned King Manuel of Portugal earlier. He was a client of Cartier. But I don't know if dress listeners remember our Gabby Delee episode where we talked about Gabby Delee's rumored love affair with King Manuel. And he actually got in so so much trouble because he was accused by the Portuguese of lavishing the country's treasury on Gabby by buying her super expensive gifts. So she supposedly had a strand of pearls that was like her body length or something. So that's like tens of millions of dollars right there. Mm -hmm. So super, super interesting to think of it in that context. Yeah,
0: for sure. Also super interesting, had you been in Paris in June of 1922, you might have come to Cartier to admire the largest known emerald in the world. Because that same year, the New York Times noted, quote, The largest known emerald in the world today reposes on a soft velvet cushion in the strong room of the rue de la paix firm of Cartier. Weighing in at more than 100 carats, this wonderful stone forms the centerpiece of a priceless historic necklace which once adorned the neck and the shoulders of Catherine the Great of Russia. And of course, you know, this emerald was just not on its own, right? It was surrounded by n- numerous other gems, diamonds, other emeralds, of course. But what's really interesting to me about this, cast is that this Russian emerald that was once the possession of Catherine the Great found its way to France and to me, this kind of is this bigger lineage of the political landscape of this era because during the Russian Revolution of the 19-teens, a lot of these Russian kind of elite jewels were sold to the French. And, and this was done because the fleeing Russian aristocrats were, were, you know, taking their jewels with them and looking to raise money. But at the same time, this was kind of like an exact reverse of what happened during the French Revolution. So, many of the same jewels that the Russians were selling back to Cartier and these other high-end firms had actually been sold to the Russian aristocracy by the French emigrants who were fleeing the French Revolution more than 100 years ago. So, I don't know. I'm just saying, like, this whole kind of, like, cycle of luxury and wealth and politics, it's all interconnected.
1: Oh, yeah. And that actually includes Madame de Berry, who we mentioned earlier, who actually... Came back to France to get her jewelry that she had hid, and lost her head.
0: Yeah, she came back for her. She came back for her jewels and her money, and then she got cut. She got cut, but by the that's guillotine. a different story. Yeah, and and, and as far as um, Cartier goes, as a family empire, and I'm speaking strictly as a family empire here, it wouldn't last within the family because Louise, Pierre, and Jacques' children actually decided to sell the business in the 1960s to outside concerns. And obviously the brand still exists today, thriving. And it is still one of the very few shops to have like this kind of late 19th century, early 20th century presence on the Rue de la Paix in its original location, which is pretty amazing.
1: Yeah, and actually another jewelry company that continues to inhabit its original digs is Van Cleef & Arpels. Mm -hmm. Arpels, I don't think I'm gonna get used to saying that. Yeah. So dress listeners, you may have noticed that we have not even maybe scratched the surface of the, <laughs> the Rue de la Paix. <laughs> There's so much more to say, including discussing the house of the so-called father of haute couture. So make sure you tune in Thursday for part two of our Rue de la Paix episode. We have so much more to say. Absolutely.
0: And I think that's going to wrap it up for us For now, and we just say for now? Because as Cass said, there's a ton more to come. May you consider where the history of luxury resides in your wardrobe next time you get dressed. Please remember, we do love hearing from you. So if you would like to write to us for an episode suggestion or even a question, you can do so at dress at iheartmedia.com. You can also DM us on Instagram at Dressed underscore podcast, or you can follow us on Facebook at Dressed Podcast without the underscore.
1: And as always, thank you to our wonderful producers, Casey Pagram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio who makes the show possible each and every week. We will catch you for part two of Ruta Lepay on Thursday. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, check out the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.